you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 25. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? All right, so good morning. And again, I want to say if you're visiting with us, it's our custom here to preach expositorily through the Bible. So we take a book of the Bible and we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And today we happen to be in 1 Samuel chapter 25. And what we've seen up to this point is, is this glorious story of the, the prophet Samuel. It began back in chapter 1 with Samuel being born to Hannah, who was childless. God gave her a son. She gave him back to the Lord, and he became one of Israel's greatest prophets and judges. And he led that nation back to God. He also um, uh, uh, or, um, anointed the first and second kings of Israel. And he was a great man of God who continued to call the people of Israel back to serving God. And now we see there's been this ongoing uh, uh, rise of Saul as king, and then Saul sins, and then God chooses another king. He chooses David, the son of Jesse. And so Samuel anoints David. And Saul is, it's an intermediate time while Saul is still king and David is still kind of running for his life because Saul decides to kill David. So, David, so, Saul, so Saul, through most of the chapters we've been through over the past weeks, uh, has been chasing down David like a dog as David hides in the nooks and crannies and, and caves of the wilderness running from Saul. And uh, it's been a, a wild ride. And yet we have this footnote almost now in verse 25, in verse 1. Now Samuel died, that great prophet, man of God. And all Israel assembled and mourned him, and they buried him in, the, in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. 
So there's not much mentioned there about this great servant of God. And again, I think the words of a servant of God should be spoken during his ministry. And and his life lives for itself. And he being dead yet speaketh, as as the Bible says. So there's not much said. He, he He died. He was buried. And then it says David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So now we're back to David running in the wilderness. Uh, obviously still skeptical of Saul as Saul is still seeking his life. So we find now in this, in this chapter this providence of God as, as, as God once again moves in the life of David to make him who he wants him to be, just like God is doing in all of our lives. So I want us to look here at verses two and three. It says this, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, not the gooey, nice, sweet stuff, but the city. (laughs) The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife was Abigail. So we are introduced here to Nabal and Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. And by the way, that puts him in the same tribe as David. They're probably distant relatives somehow, so that's something to keep in the back of our minds. But we look here at Abigail. She was beautiful and discerning, it says. That's, that's, we're going to see more of that in her as we look. But then Nabal. The name itself is the word for fool or foolish. And it says he was hard. And literally misbehaved or badly behaved just means evil. He was a hard and evil man. And he was a fool. And we're going to see that as this story unfolds. Now what we have now, David and his men, he's got about 600 uh, men of war with him now. And they're traveling and they're running and they're low on supplies And so David decides to reach out to Nabal for help. Verse four, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. That happens about twice a year. It's a big event. It's a huge event, very profitable event. And there's a lot of celebration going on around that. So David sent 10 young men and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now, your shepherds have been with us. Literally, David's saying, I hear that you have shearers, which means you're making a big profit now. That's what he's saying. And he reminds him, your shepherds have been with us. And we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. Again, that word son David could even be, again, a relative kind of term uh, of, a, of a family type term. But um, he's reminding Nabal here that we actually, I had a security group stay with your shepherds. We guarded them from the raiding Philistines or any other groups that would try to steal or poach some of your, your sheep or your oxen. And, and, and we've taken care of you. And now we're just asking for a little handout here, a little help, right? Just a little, a little bit of the, 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 the you know, reaping of your benefits. Here's Nabal's response to, to the king, verse 9 through 12. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered <laughs> David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? 
There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to, to men who come from I don't know where? So David's young men turned and came back and told him all of this. So, uh, so this harsh response, right? It was, it was harsh. Why was it harsh? Because David and his men had protected Nabal's flocks from bandits. Also, because it's harsh because David very well may be a family or distant family of, of Nabal. And then it's a foolish response <laughs> because David is God's anointed king. David himself is a warrior of warriors, and he's got 600 fighting men. So you normally don't just get very arrogant with the guys that have this kind of force with them. So he's a foolish man. So David responds to Nabal. Verse 13, and David said to his men, strap up. That's what he said. Lock and load. That's what he's saying. Every man strap on a sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 uh, uh, men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. So David's response here is odd if you were here last week. If you were here last week and we saw what happened. As, as Saul is just, again, out of his mind chasing down David, who did nothing to Saul, but be faithful to Saul and serve Saul diligently. And yet Saul is after him. He's jealous. He's bitter. He's angry. He's trying to kill him. Well, Saul and his men are looking for David. They hear he's in a certain area. They, they set up camp, and Saul walks away from his men and tries to find a private spot to relieve himself, the Bible says. Nature calls. And he finds a big cave opening, and he goes into this cave pretty far in there. You want some privacy, and he is doing his business. And the Bible tells us he knew not that David's men were in the recesses of that cave. God literally delivered Saul into the hand of David, and David's men told him this. He had this opportunity to cut off the head of Saul and be done with this. And yet David only cut off a part of his hem of his, of his robe. And then when Saul walked out, David followed after him once Saul was quite a ways away and said, hey, I could have taken your head off. Instead, I just cut this garment. Does this look familiar? And Saul says, wow, <laughs> what? And you know what David said? He said, here's why I wouldn't do it. His men told him, do it. They begged him, take this guy's head off. God has given him to you. But David said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. And it's God who will avenge, avenge me. God will take care of this. I'm going to wait on God. I'm going to let God do that work. I'm just going to be faithful and patient. And now <laughs> we see, just like overnight, a different David who, when he's kind of riled up, he, he, he all of a sudden over Nabal, he's ready to take his head off. So David's reaction here is not normal. It's not the normal David that we were used to seeing. What it shows us is, folks, guess what it shows us? This is why I love the Bible. We're all sinners. One time, one day, we may be stellar for the glory of God, like David was last week, and the next, we fall, and we look horrible in the sight of God. And we sin, and we're selfish, and we're looking to ourselves and our own needs. Why? Because we're still in this flesh.
So David now is not waiting on God, but he's taking matters into his own hands. That's what's happening here. And that's, that, that is sin. If David does what he's about to do in his heart, what he wants to do, if he goes to Nabal and David said, there'll not be one male baby alive by the time I'm done with this, this family and this whole city. He was going to slay everybody. And if he did that, that would be horrific sin that he would live with throughout his ministry. And sometimes the glory of God is things we don't even know. And that is that God in his providence here is going to use two people to deliver David from himself. He's going to hinder David from carrying out his own desires here so so that he won't sin against God. Wow, look at verses 14 through 17 as we see the first person God uses providentially here to save David from himself, literally. And it's an unnamed servant of Nabal. It's one of his servants in in verse 14. It says, but one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife. He said, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went along with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house, And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. So we get the character of Nabal again reaffirmed. He's such a worthless, harsh, wicked man. Even his own servants know it's no use talking to him. So they went to Abigail, who is what? Discerning and beautiful, intelligent, wise. Uh, uh, so, So they go and they report this to her. And she is the second person that God uses now to deliver David and her husband Nabal Nabal, from certain death. Look at verse 18 through 20. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched, that's about seven liters of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Because he, in the Hebrew, is an idiot. That's the word. That would be the word. (laughs) So, (laughs) and as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. There's a lot of faith being exercised here by this woman. David is enraged. And and he is coming to wipe out this family. He's an angry king. She meets him. Look, look, look look, look at this side note here, verse 21 through 22. Now David had said, it's reminding us, here's... Here's who she's meeting. She's meeting David and his men coming up. She's going toward them with all these gifts. And David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all this fellow, all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good 
God do so to the enemies of David and more so also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. So the writer under the influence of the Holy Spirit is letting us know the peril that Abigail really is facing here as she comes head to head with David and his forces. There is a real clear and present danger there. But notice and this is it. This is, the, this, is, this is where I want to key in a little bit here. Notice Abigail's response to the king. We've seen Nabal's response to the king. Ridiculously selfish, harsh, belligerent, rebellious, pri- prideful. But lo- notice Abigail's response. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, She hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is his game, is what she's saying there. (laughs) But look what she says. But I, your servant, did not see the young men from my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you. Listen to what she says here. Because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from, and, and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has, has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. Man, there's a lot there. So much. We see in Abigail's response. We see humility. We see her bow before this king, fall at his feet and plead his mercy. Not an inkling of, I deserve something from you. No, except for for your punishment. (laughs) The only thing I deserve is your punishment. That's what she's saying. And she uses the words, forgive. Forgive me. Falling at his mercy. Do you not see the, the, the contrast here between how she responds to the king and how every human being must respond to the king of kings? And then she says, God has restrained you from sinning. That's what she's saying. God is stopping you from committing this blood guilt because he's got a plan for you, David. He's protecting you. You are his man, the the man after God's own heart, the king that he's anointed to establish his throne forever. That's what she goes on to say. David, I know that the Lord will establish your house forever. She confirms the very promises that God has already made concerning David. She believes God. She knows that David is his chosen king. 
And so she reiterates all of these truths. Certainly the Lord will make your house established. Now we've got to keep going. Verse 29. She continues to confirm this truth. She says, if men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. What a way to say, God will protect you. <laughs> if people seek you, God has you bundled in his care of protection. And the lives of your enemies, he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Pun probably intended about knowing that David is the one that killed Goliath with a sling, right? But God's going to do that to his enemies. He's just going to sling them out. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience of having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Be gracious to us when you come into your kingdom. Or, <sighs> hearkening to Good Friday, the thief, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's what she's saying here. And it's glorious. You've been spared from sinning. God has protected you from sinning against him. And working salvation by your own hands. Do you see that? This is what's showing it. This is, this is God's word showing us that for us to take matters in our own hands is sin to God. To not trust God, to not explicitly trust God with the affairs of our lives, with all of the things going on, and to grab hold of that and take control and try to do it ourselves is sin. Look at this response from the king, from David. Verse 32, and David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to me, to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my hand. And it, what a glorious trait to see in this king. Even he has the humility to admit, yes, I was sinning. I was wrong. Thank you for your discernment, your discretion, and your confrontation. Literally, you stopped me face to face, and you put before me my sin. And by the way, that should be the response that believers have with believers when we hold each other accountable. That, that's, if we love each other, there's times when we love each other that we will tell the truth and that we will risk danger to confront and to point out our sin. And our response must be, thank you for telling me the truth that I might repent. Now look what he goes on to say. She says, for as surely as the, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, David says, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. I am not going to kill your husband or anybody else. Go in peace. Wow. 
Now, we're not finished. Look at verse 36. I'm telling you, this is amazing. I mean, there is action and romance and intrigue and everything. I mean, this is, this is amazing. Look at verse 36. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things. Basically, she said, Nabal, you came this close to... And his heart died within him, and he became as a stone... This is interesting. I mean, many modern medical uh, doctors and people in the in medical field read this, and they think this is really uh, describing a stroke, something like a stroke. He's, he's, he's not dead, or he's not truly dead, but his heart, something happened there, and, and he was like a stone. He wasn't able to respond. So something's going on here. And yet, it goes on to say, so, lest we think that he just dies of a medical illness just sporadically, it says, and about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. So the writer makes sure that we understand that God is fully in control of what's happening here. And that this is God working. So Nabal is struck dead. Obviously, it's the judgment of God. And what happened? What do we see here? We see that vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. It wasn't David's job to defend himself or to avenge himself. It was God's. And God in his providence protected David from sinning and taking that matter into his own hands. And he's sanctifying David, teaching David to trust even when I don't understand, to wait on the Lord. Not try to rush in there and fix it myself, but to trust that even when things are bad, this is God working in my life. He uses all things. All things work together for good, even the bad and the painful and the uncertain so what grace we see in this. But we're not, we're not finished yet. Look at this. This is glorious. Because everybody loves romance. Verse, 20, verse 39 through 42. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged me, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. So again, David admits all that I just said. God took care, he kept me from sinning, and he took care of Nabal. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. <laughs> when the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So she washed their feet. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Wow. Glorious. So much there. Thank God for his providence his sovereignty, his protection over us as believers. When we are even headed to sin and he stops us, thank God for that grace. Thank God for the messages that we've learned in this. But I want to I bring it back as we make an application here to close out on this Easter morning. Because what we've seen 
ultimately here is a foreshadow. And that's what the whole Bible does. One thing I hope you're learning is that the whole Bible tells one story, and it's all about Jesus. <laughs> Even this in 1 Samuel is all about Jesus, because David is simply a foreshadow of Christ. And so what you see, when you see these two people respond to David, it's a type, it's a picture of the two ways we can respond to Christ, the King of Kings. Either we do it arrogantly, pridefully, ignoring Him, basically, or we humble ourselves and admit our need for His grace and mercy, and we fall upon His grace and trust Him to save us. And I want to just show you that the Bible, there's, that it's not that I'm, you know, well, yeah, Greg, you're stretching that, and you're taking this, you know, you preachers do that, you're making a big illustration here out of something that's not really there. Glad you said that, glad you brought it up. <laughs> I just want to show us what the Bible does say. Is it true that Jesus is really the fulfillment of David? David was just a foreshadow, a forerunner of Christ? Yes. If we... Look at 2 Samuel 7, 16. There's a prophecy made concerning David. He says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. And Abigail just said that. She knew that God said this. David, your house is forever. Your throne shall be established forever. You hear that? So someone first read that. Well, David's going to live forever. God just established his rule, his kingship, his throne forever. Well, of course, he didn't live forever. As a matter of fact, 300 years after David's death, the prophet Jeremiah says this to show us again that none of this is an accident. God is working from Genesis to Revelation to do what? To glorify his son. Jeremiah 5, or 23 verse 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David, a righteous branch, an offshoot, an offspring. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute judge, justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Obviously pointing to Christ. He said, well, Greg, I'm not convinced. Okay, good. Thank you. 17 times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the son of David. Why? Because, again, this is the fulfillment of what God prophesied and was foreshadowing in the Old Testament through David. David is this type, this, this forerunner of the king of kings. When, when God says, David, your throne's going to reign forever, he wasn't talking about David. He's saying, David, from your offspring will come my anointed king, Jesus. Therefore, 17 times in the New Testament, we see the apostles and others and Christ himself refer to himself as the son of David. Paul confirms this in Romans 1, verses 1 through 4, that Jesus is that king who will live evermore. It says, 
Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So even Paul's saying the whole gospel story that we preach about Jesus Christ, that was promised by the prophets way back in the Old Testament. That's the gospel. The New Testament's the gospel. It's all the gospel, the good news of Christ. But look what he says. He says he promised this through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what, what today is all about is, is we traditionally celebrate the resurrection of Christ. That is the ultimate proclamation that Jesus Christ, the son of David, is the very fulfillment of that king of kings who will rule forevermore. Forevermore. Jesus died, yes, as a suffering servant. He, he, he was under the weight of our sin as the wrath of God was poured out upon him. He was the man of sorrows. He was meek and lowly. Yes. There was nothing about him as he lived his life on this earth that would make somebody want to look at him. He had nothing special. And many in the, in the flesh, humanly speaking, would say, what a loser. He doesn't answer for himself. He doesn't, he doesn't answer back the critics who falsely accused him. They, he lets them drag him to a cross. He just lays there as they beat him. He dies like a little lamb. Yes, because that was his mission. Because he had to redeem his people. And the only way to do that was to be crushed under God's wrath for us. But having done that, having redeemed his people, he rose again. And now he is the king of those people. And the king of all. And he's coming again. <laughs> this, is, this is God's word. Now, you can believe this or not believe this, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, now I pray that eyes will be open and hearts will be broken and that we, like Abigail, will all fall to our knees before the, the, the king that the Bible reveals. Revelation 19, I want to close with this. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Look at this description. How will you respond to this king? It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. This is the description, not of a weeping man of sorrow anymore, not a babe in a manger who came to, to live and to suffer. This is the conquering, triumphant king, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we all must respond to. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. 
That's what John told us in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. This same Jesus is who we're talking about here. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. No debate. He will rule. He is ruling. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, this is the fulfillment of what began in the book of Genesis, carried through 1 Samuel, all the way through the Old Testament into the New. The same theme. The son of David, of the tribe of Judah, will rule and reign forever as the king of kings. How do you respond? How do you respond to the king? Are you humbled? Do you admit you need him in all of his grace? Do you forsake your righteousness and your goodness and your church life and everything else that you hold up as being good and realize I am nothing but a filthy rag in need of his righteousness, his mercy, his grace? And do you fall at his feet? That's the only place of safety, folks. May we rejoice in that resurrected Savior. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you loved us enough to communicate to us a more sure word, a prophecy. Your word, Father, forever settled, reveals to us who we are and who you are and and shows us our great need and the danger that we're in apart from resting in Christ. So, Father, I pray that you draw men and women to yourself today, that we will rest in you and trust in you. And then rejoice in you. As not just the ruling king, but as that friend who sticks closer than a brother, a great high priest who prays for us, our loving Savior. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.